Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 202. So glad you could join me. 202 episodes in the books, and this is going to be a great one coming up. We have Bruce Weigel here. Uh, he'll be with us for about 10 minutes, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell for notifications. Whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet would be greatly appreciated. Now, like I said, we have... Uh, a great, uh, great Bruce Weigel is here uh, for the main guest. We also have Ernest Hilbert, who is here for Rattlecast number uh, 121. He'll be here. He has a new book, Storm Swimmer. So after Bruce, in the second hour, we'll be talking to Ernie, too. And so it's a double feature a little bit, a very short segment with uh, a returning guest like we like to do, and then the open line. So if you have a poem you'd like to share, please uh, keep them handy. And one poem, I, one poet I do know has a poem uh, for the prompt that we had this week, which is Loretta Glossa. Uh, was Janthi Rangan, uh, because she sent me that already. But she also had, for the first time, the uh, Poets Respond poem this week. And so let's take a look at that. I thought she might be here. Um, maybe she's not. If you're here, Janthi, cl- sign into the Zoom so we can uh, talk to you about it. But let's take a look at her poem, which was Sunday's poem on Rattle.com. Um, and the poem is right here. It was... Um, Cluster bombs have a quirk. And this was one of the topics that came up a lot this week. This was one of those weeks where I didn't read the news at all. And so I figured out what was going on during the week by virtue of reading Poets Respond submissions. So apparently climate change was a big topic. And apparently um, the U.S. was selling cluster bombs to the Ukraine. And um, and that was a big topic that people were concerned about Um as as it should be and here's uh janthy now it looks like she's signing in and you have to connect the audio too but it'd be nice if we had janthy here uh to talk about her poem janthy can you uh unmute yourself and and sign and, and join us so uh hi janthy how are you doing it's great to see you uh in the earlier segment of the show uh how's it going uh, good good um yeah very excited to be here yeah, so uh, you had the uh, Poet Respond poem this week, which was uh, Cluster Bombs Have a Quirk. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that poem and, and how it came to be? Oh, um, I just happened to see this person and that that I describe in the poem. Um, it happened while I was waiting um, to meet up, uh, meet up with family members. And then uh, I saw the scene unfold that this uh, gentleman walked past her and then came and gave her a hug. And uh, uh, I mean, this person was bending, um, her body was almost bent because uh, um, it looked like she was feeling very sad. And as soon as this person gave her a hug, which was a brief hug, and he went away, and uh, to me, that was so profound. I stood there and uh, kept on thinking about it. And uh, um, later on, I added all the scenes and made a poem out mm-hmm. of it. And how did, it, how did you come from that scene that you witnessed um, to the, the issue of cluster bombs being sold to Ukraine? 
Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. How did what did that connection? Because the beautiful thing about the poem, which we'll have you read in a minute, is that you start there and then um, you know and then go completely a completely different direction and let us uh, sort of think about the connection between the two. Uh, there's a lot of juxtaposition there. So how does that how did that that connection appear in your mind? Okay. The um, and I was reading uh, uh, an article about the cluster bombs and they had. Uh, diagrams of how a cluster bomb works. And it looked like a very neat package. Um, The whole package had very small um, bomblets, so to speak. And um, it also said that the bomblets, um, they they don't all explode at the same time, but um, some may explode years after after the drop. And uh, so that got me thinking. And uh, I was thinking these, um, the small things that happen in our day-to-day lives, the stresses that build up in our day-to-day lives are just like those small little bombs, um, you know, coming together and then we cannot take it anymore. The stress builds up so much and then, um, uh, you know, it comes out. So that's what took me to that. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a powerful poem and, and a beautiful way to put it. Do you want to go ahead and read it? Okay, I will. Okay, here we go. Cluster bombs have a quirk. The bomblets don't explode all at once but lurk and layer cyanide on grief. First, my 1996 Hyundai was snagged. Then my routine tension set in of stretching the dollar like a snake's jaw till the next paycheck. My six-year-old hiccuped his naughty life through his heaving T-shirt. His best friend, had found a new best friend. At Lexington Center, I waited for the walk sign. When the light blinked, I did too. Rooted, I heard the traffic roar and the water table of my eyes vaguely saw a stranger who walked past and then came back. May I give you a hug? I nodded and he gave a tunicate for my disturbed mind and I for the walk sign. Yeah, it's a beautiful little poem there. And and I loved especially that the uh, of stretching the dollar like a snake's jaw. That's such a great <laughs> metaphor and, and such a fresh one. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Chanthi. It's so great to see you uh, on the uh, in the pages of Rattle. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, great. And I know you wrote a glossa too. And so we'll see you on the open lines, I think, in a little bit. So uh, okay. take care and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. bye. That was Jayanthi Rongan, uh, this week's poet on Poets Respond with Cluster Bombs Have a Quirk. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, uh, Bruce Weigel. So sit tight and I will be right back with more poetry.
And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Bruce Weigel. Uh, Bruce is the author of over 20 books of poetry, t- translations, and essays, most recently Among Elms and Ambush. Uh, most of them are from BOA, uh, my favorite hometown press. Um, his other books include On the Shores of Welcome Home and The Abundance of Nothing, uh, which was a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Weigel has won the Lannan Literary Award for Poetry, the Poets Prize from the Academy of American Poets, the Robert Crilly Award, the Cleveland Arts Prize, the Two Doche. Chan Kine Award from the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, and the 2018 Premier Tudor Argezi Prize for the National Museum of Literature in Romania. Having fought in the American War in Vietnam, Bruce Weigel has been working to promote mutual understanding and reconciliation between Vietnam and the U.S. via literature and cultural exchanges for over 20 years. He's the co-translator of four Vietnamese English poetry collections and received a medal for significant contributions from the Vietnam Union of Literature and Arts Associations and the Vietnam Writers Association, who acknowledges his efforts and success in the promotion of Vietnamese literature to the world. He lives in Oberlin, Ohio, and Hanoi, Vietnam. And here he is, Bruce Weigel. Hey, Bruce, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you. And it's one of those funny things. I uh, I was reading one of your books not too long ago, um, you know, and uh, I was thinking, gosh, I wish Bruce would send us some poems sometimes. I love Bruce's work. And then a few weeks later, in Submittable, there appeared a couple poems. And so it's great yeah. to have you uh, in an issue of Rattle for the first time and great to have you on the Rattlecast. I'm proud to be there. Thanks very much. Um, so why don't you start out uh, with a poem? Do you want to read... Let's see, I think the first one, the oldest one we have is O Atonement. Do you want to start there from um, The Unraveling Strangeness? I will. Thank you. O Atonement. Through lonely motel walls, I heard that human ah of pleasure from a woman with a man. I don't remember who I was then, only that it was alive again somehow, so I sat up all that night grateful for whatever noisy business they could give me. But there was never enough, so I entered the stream and moved then at my ease with the current and the dark shapes of my baggage through a winding journey of a life until some people murdered the truth. Yet this evening, along roads, I have come home to, after the many deaths and the many betrayals, I can watch a giant thunderhead grow and form itself like a living thing into one corner of our flat Ohio sky, and I can say, this is where I'll pray. Yeah, that is O Atonement, the uh, opening poem to uh, The Unraveling Strangeness, uh, one of the great books by Bruce Bruce Weigel, and a great opening poem to that book, too. It really sets the stage, um, you know, the, the poems as a kind of prayer and a kind of re- remembrance. Um, so thanks for starting there, Bruce. Can you, can you go back? So, so we, um, you know, you're, you're most well-known, of course, as a, as a veteran poet. Um, and can you talk a little bit about how you came into poetry? You know, where did that take place in your timeline, going back through the, the history of going to Vietnam, uh, serving there and coming back? When was it that you found poetry? Yeah, it wasn't until uh, I was never headed in the direction of books. Uh, There weren't books in my house. People didn't read books or talk about reading books. Um, But when I went to the war, a friend of mine 
uh, stole a book out of the high school library, uh, a book of poetry, because it had a poem about World War II, and he wanted me to read it. So he stole the whole book and he sent it to me in Vietnam. Hmm. And it was James Dickey's uh, selected poems. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the poem that he wanted me to read was the poem, The Fire Bombing, which is uh, probably one of Dickey's greatest poems, an mm -hmm. amazing poem. Um, so uh, that caught my eye. And even before I came home, I think, but especially shortly after I came home, uh, it occurred to me that I might be able to express some of the things that I was having difficulty talking about or even understanding in uh, in a poem, mm -hmm. like James Dickey had done. So, you know, that began a thousand failures in a row. <laughs> yeah, well, that's definitely how it works. So do you think, were you, uh, when you say express yourself in a poem, do you, are you thinking more in terms of um, expressing yourself, like trying to figure out yourself for yourself or expressing it for other people so they'd understand the, the kind of things you've been through? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a different kind of self. You're right. It's a qualified self. It's the self that I create that, is most appropriately and most powerfully uh, the voice that I need to tell that particular moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does. It does. And, and so, you know, is it something, though, that, that you were looking for an audience? Like, did you say, like, people need to hear these stories? Or is it something that you're trying to come to terms with yourself and then it's sort of happenstance that, that people appreciate the poems too? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that people appreciate them. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I never intended that. Um, it, it just was, uh, I think it was too difficult to try to think about that. There was so much else that I had to learn and so much else I had to think about mm -hmm. uh, to write a poem that if I started thinking about the audience, then it was really easy to get lost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I think that's, that's especially a danger now because trends these days are so powerful in uh, contemporary American poetry and fiction. Uh, so it's difficult to to just choose your subject anymore like it like it was possible when I was coming up as a young writer mm -hmm. um, well but, let's well, I, I was the 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 war was a, a accident of history but it was also you know good timing in terms of, of the arc of my writing mm -hmm. so that's always a paradox in my life yeah you know uh, and and I accepted it as a paradox. Were you drafted or did you enlist? No, I enlisted. Mm -hmm. You know, I, the, the odd thing is I enlisted to avoid going to uh, Vietnam hmm. because I thought if I enlisted, I could choose a training program that would keep me out of the war, but uh, it didn't work. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I went anyway. 
Well, I want to talk more about uh, the trends in poetry you mentioned, but let's hear another poem next. I think the super, from again, from The Unraveling Strangest is the next one you had lined up on page 13. If you want to pull it up and we'll, we'll go there next. Um, yeah. Uh, is it okay if I say a few words about this book? Yeah. Before I... Yeah, definitely. Please do. This poem as well. I, I, I remembered uh, reading these poems again after we uh, exchanged messages online that this is the the first uh, book that I wrote where I began to realize that uh, writing poems was really solving problems. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, what I had to do was was first get at the heart of what the problem was. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it because it's it's very true. I and mean, they're they're sort of they're sort of a non-rational means at solving like psychological problems, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. This is called the super. And I I I think that what I just said is clear in this poem. I hope it is. I met the super on the battleship gray painted stoop of the five-floor walk-up McDougal Street back when it was neighborhood and I'd hooked up with a woman who had money from her folks and a job that paid good and who told me, come stay with me, honey, that nearly forgotten summer in the post-war black grief and loss and all I had to do was sleep up there on the fifth floor with her and love her some nights. We ate dinner together in restaurants. But that first morning, I got there ahead of her and met the super on the stoop on McDougal Street. I was 20. I had already seen inside the storm of shit. And this woman said with a nasal screech that she was the super and that I couldn't get in nohow as it wasn't my place. And she called some Puerto Rican young men to her aid when they barely resisted in defense of my stupid rights and of the rights of the not-yet-arrived woman who expected me. She expected things of me. If I were to get this walk-up room to write in or no, I never wrote. I couldn't write when I heard her breathe at night so close, although there was some loveliness there, too, I recall. The tough guys said they'd cut my fucking heart out if I didn't leave the super alone and get the hell back to wherever I was supposed to be. A question, I believe, they had no idea how to answer. I know that I didn't. Later, when the would-be keeper of me finally showed up, the super relented, and later still, once summer had become something we could both bear, we got to talking one evening on the stoop. August, nighttime traffic and lovers I watched, unworthy, and in the middle of the super's winter story about how the heat went off one night in the place, so she nearly froze and so dragged her chair to the gas stove's open door, propped her tired feet there and fell hard to sleep. She lifted her dress to show me. Like you, I could hardly believe the scars on her legs from where they'd caught fire, open sores still oozing that human acid in this eight months after the fact. Give us back our lives, I say. Yeah, and that was uh, the super once again. 
from uh, Bruce Wiggle's book, The Unraveling Strangeness. Um, and so you mentioned, uh, Bruce, the trends in poetry now and, and how they've changed. How has poetry changed over the years? Um, you know, I was just talking about this recently, uh, that when we started the Poet Response series, where we started out here, poetry was not very political. And it was sort of strange uh, that political poetry was was you know something that you'd publish even there wasn't that much of it and now it's it's extremely common um, but but you sort of uh, you know if you talk about poetry of war that's sort of by default political so um, so that's there too but but how do you think poetry has changed as far as what you can write about like you were talking about before you know I I like uh, uh, Carolyn Forche's definition of of political poetry. And, and she says it's it's poetry that has a design on you. Hmm. So you know, it, I like the way that broadens the the definition of what a political poem is, uh, because it's you know it's not just of course limited to writing about political action or political figures or political activity or political history, but it's a way of thinking about the world mm-hmm. and about other people. Um, you know, I grew up as a writer in a, in a, in a time that was wide open, uh, a time in which all the doors uh, were knocked down, all the old doors were knocked down, and, and uh, anything went, mm-hmm. you know, as long as it was good. Uh, uh, along the way uh, of my education as a young writer, the canon began to broaden a lot. And as a student, I was exposed to uh, a much more diverse community of writers than the generation before me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that was all to everyone's benefit. Uh, w- anyone who had any sense at all realized that the more diverse our literary community, the, the better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so... You know, my timing in school was good because that's what was happening at the time. And, it, you know, it, it had to affect my work uh, and and my exposure to my generation of poets who came up at the same time in a variety of different traditions had to affect my work as well. Um, today, I have a feeling that the uh, subjects upon which general approbation is most bestowed have narrowed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, and I especially think that the inclusion of as wide a variety of voices as possible is a good thing, an important thing, an essential thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about formal expression as well, that we should always keep trying something new, something different. Uh, you know, I love Pound's idiom there, make it new, mm-hmm. make it new. Uh, uh, so I'm all for that kind of experimentation as well. Um, but I think that the... You know, the writing industry, per se, has been so quick to grab onto uh, a lot of these new literary expressions uh, 
that they've forgotten about a whole other body of work that's out there. Mm-hmm. That 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 may or may not have anything directly to do with those more important subjects these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, it seems to go along with the professionalization of poetry, um, as uh, Dana Joya you know put it in that essay back in the, the late '90s. He saw it coming with the MFA programs, where there is yeah. this sort of sort of pipeline into poetry, and then certain expectations and, and styles um, set in, and then. You know, to me, too, when I was um, falling in love with poetry, it was that same 90s era, but it was the poets of the 70s and 80s and 60s that were really pushing the boundaries of things and experimenting and playing and going in a lot of different directions. Um, and in the new formalist, too, you know, uh, Mark Jarman was one of my right. first favorite poets and, and just sort of sort of finding those boundaries and pushing against them and playing with it was just the fun of poetry. And there does seem to be a feeling now that you that there's a there's a way to go about being a poet. You know, you get into these programs and you go through certain things. And I even had, when I was in a MFA program, um, we had a a no rhyming rule (laughs) in one class, which is just bizarre to even think of. Um, And, and, you know, and so I think we do get a a sort of a monoculture by virtue of everybody going through the same process of going about becoming a poet. And uh, that is one of the reasons why Rattles Here is to resist that thing, because we have people from all over the place um, becoming poets with all sorts of backgrounds and not going through MFA programs. But it does seem like there's a certain, um, you know, one mindset that the, uh, the, so many of the submissions come from. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about, having one sort of point of view that's sort of a, a college? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And it gives me the opportunity to say that that's what attracted me to Rattle in the first place, was that it seemed like a different kind of place uh, for literature. And, and I liked what I saw there right away. And I could see that, that uh, lack of bias in uh, a kind of openness uh, that, that uh, you know, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, there's such a wide breadth of what you offer. And, uh, you know, the criteria is, once again, it just has to be good. That's all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You know, and it's difficult to talk about, especially if you're uh, an old white guy like I am, <laughs> you know, without being criticized. But I'm not talking about... Uh, 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 how anything should be excluded. I'm talking about how everything should be included and that the problem today seems that things are being included, things are being excluded uh, for the sake of other things being included. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it it, it was probably that way in the 50s and maybe even in the early 60s, but in the mid-60s and 70s and 80s, that began to change. Uh, and that was part of my experience growing up. So uh, I never felt like uh, uh, we had shortchanged anyone in my literary tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels to me, uh, the first time I noticed that that issue, the, sort of the monoculture perspective, was when uh, I thought about doing a conservative poets issue. Because I started seeing a lot of poems from a liberal political perspective. And then... Uh, and just noticing that there never was a conservative type perspective, even though I'm not conservative, I still want to hear about, you know, other people's opinions and point of view. And so I yeah. asked around if we could do a conservative poets issue. I asked, I was looking for people to interview and I said, Hey, could we interview you for a conservative poets issue? I won't even say who it is. Cause everybody said, Oh, I'm not a conservative. Don't put that label on me. Um, you know, so it started around that Bush era 
um, for for me anyway, that that sense that like, oh, I can't be labeled this way politically, even though it was clear that these poets were conservative, <laughs> and uh, but it was sort of like felt like career suicide at the time. And no I found about um, you know, a Not handful even... of poets that were willing to even be included in an issue like that. And so that's sort of the the point where I started seeing that uh, that issue uh, come up. I can't believe Dana Joy wasn't taking care, wasn't taking advantage of that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. Does he even? I think everybody says they're a classical liberal now instead of a oh, conservative, okay. and that's the way they get around it. Um, yeah, but uh, but anyway, we should get back to poetry. Uh, it is a, it's an interesting topic too. But but let's do one more poem from uh, the Unraveling Strangest. Do you want to do uh, a meeting, Mister Death? Sure. It's sixty-eight. If you're looking for it. Yeah, I, 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 I have it. I'm just thinking about it. You know, th- this is an old book for me. I, I, I published another book, two other books since this, and I actually finished another book as well recently. So um, I'm going back to these after a long time. But I, 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 I like the way, uh, I like what I, what I uh, did with the lines in these poems a lot. Meeting Mr. Meeting Mr. Death. You could say I kept my cool when I met Mr. Death. I even made him laugh by offering my hand to shake in the bullet-torn morning hours. And then I said, are you looking at me? And he got the joke. Death gets the joke, or else our whole lives are a lie and a waste. He didn't take my hand, but he laughed at my jokes, and he made me feel welcome inside the grace he still wore, shawl of the ghostly angel he had been but could not remember. Mr. Death, he was hanging around some pals of mine, some boys of the unspeakable rapture of war. He could have had me that morning, too, when I looked away, to the monsoon-heavy river where the bodies had come to rest in the last eddies, but he changed his mind. Yeah, I love that poem, especially for the line, uh, um, or is it, that death gets the joke or else our whole lives are a lie and a waste. I think that's so, there's so much truth in that. It's one of the poems that just stood out from this book a long time ago when I first read it. Um, and, but you mentioned your, your line breaks in this poem, and, and that's one of the things I love, too, is the way, um, you know, that you, the attention to detail and the conciseness and the, the strength of each word and line break and choice, it feels like everything is very intentionally laid out. So what, what is your, your thought on, on the line? How do you come up with, how do you decide the shape of a poem, um, how it's going to appear on the page, and, and what's that process like of, of figuring out where the line ends? Yeah, it usually begins by something that I hear, and that's uh, uh, engaging to me, interesting to me. So I, I'll write it down, and I'll you know I'll measure, see what's going on musically there. Um, I always try to have some kind of music driving the poem, um, but my range of musical possibilities is wide, from everything. Uh, uh, from, from 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 free verse to essential syllabic, and everything in between, um, and you know, I, I firmly believe that poetry is a musical art, uh, and and 
although it can create narratives, it has to do that musically mm-hmm. to be poetry. That's what separates poetry from prose, finally. Uh, it doesn't make one better than the other. It just says that one is different than the other. You know, the lyric as opposed to the narrative, the song as opposed to the story. Um, so uh, I'm always thinking about some kind of music. In uh, in that book, you know, I'm trying, I, I remember trying to, to find a way to merge the music of the sentence with the music of the line. Mm-hmm. So I think I would start by first arbitrarily bro- breaking the poems almost syntactically. Um, but then going back and there were places where I didn't like the syntactical break, so I would ignore that and and, and do it another way or how it was originally. So I, 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 I know I did that with this book a lot. I, I might have also been counting syllables too. And, you know, the interesting thing about English when you count syllables is that there's a there's a given number of extended syllables for any given number of syllables. So, you know, if, if you choose X number of if you choose 10 syllables or 12 syllables in English, you're going to have five stress syllables hmm. more likely than not. So even though you're just counting syllables, what you're really doing is writing a kind of accentual verse, uh, which uh, which is a music that I like a lot in poetry because it's very natural. Uh, but it's 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 also a way though to, you know, form is there to direct the reader's attention through the poem, and I I love the challenge of doing that, but also doing it musically. Mm-hmm. That that brings up a question I've always wondered and and never got a chance to ask about really I think is that you know the so much of you know you mentioned the music and poetry and I've always felt that the difference between poetry and prose is that poetry lives in our breath like the reader's actual breath is the medium of poetry and the re- the writer's manipulating that and getting you know us sort of painting on the palette of our lungs the poem and the interesting thing about about um, English is that it's so iambic in the natural way we speak. I mean, like you, you mentioned about that, the way that, that the English language has that stressed, unstressed pattern. Um, but you've translated a lot of poems from Vietnamese. Is there a similar thing going on at all in the Vietnamese where you can hear, like, what's the music of a Vietnamese poem? Um, and how is that different from an English poem? It's maddeningly different. <laughs> yeah. And so is the entire language. Um the, the two most difficult and impossible things about translating from the Vietnamese is first, it's a highly contextual language so that uh, a great deal of meaning comes from very small contextual references um, that are difficult to understand if you don't understand the culture and the history. Uh, and, and the, the music uh, uh, comes from the fact that it's a language that relies upon uh, diacritics, and and uh, uh, th- there's basically five of them. Uh, so you could apply five different diacritics to the same word, and it means five different things. So the music comes from uh, the rhythm of those diacritics, uh, and it's very beautiful. Hmm. Uh, there's a very old rhythm in Vietnamese poetry called lukba, which means six eight. And it's, it's six of these, what we would call in English, feet, uh, alternating eight. But it's also uh, uh, complicated by the fact that 
there's a very precise rhyme scheme woven into that uh, metrical form in Vietnamese mm. that, that makes it the form that it is, the whole that it is. So, um, you know, the best we can do when we translate, when I translate from the Vietnamese, is to, is to look for accentual forms in English, mm -hmm. um, at least to have that kind of music going that sometimes is not too far off from what the Vietnamese is. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it is. It's just it's interesting and such a complicated thing to do. We've interviewed a few translators. Um, I think Art Beck, who we uh, we've had an, a whole series on translation, called it an impertinent duet because you're sort of dancing with the original text, but you don't get to you don't get to decide where it goes, which is a interesting way to think about it. Um, let, let's keep the the poems coming and, and do. We're moving on to uh, the next book in the series, which is on the shores of Welcome Home. And yes. um, I think the first poem you had you wanted to read from there was uh, the elephant uh, on page thirteen. The elephant. It's a short one. Um, okay. Yeah, the elephant gift in the room. That's the full title. Thank you. Sun refuses the last nanosecond before night. Stars explode in your cold head. Old nostalgic bombs and rockets classic mortar rounds, but no one understands, and no one hears you speak, and no one even sees you standing there in your 62 years, soldier. Yeah, and that was a very short poem, The Elephant Gift in the Room from On the Shores of Welcome Home, uh, the second-to-last book from Bruce Weigel. And uh, and so so what was the difference between this book? As you go through, you know, having over 20 books of poetry published and, and other things, um, how do you, um, you know, you're, you're grappling with a lot of the same issues in a lot of the books that you write. How do you mm -hmm. know, like, where one book ends and what begins? And, and there's a different feel to all the books, too. You know, the you mentioned we talked about line length already, but this book has a much longer line, um, and, and there's a different sort of feel and, and take on topics, too. So how do you go about these transition shifts that you do from book to book? You know, when I was an undergraduate at Oberlin, uh, Phil Levine came to visit our creative writing group, our poetry group. He gave a reading, and then afterwards, uh, we got to sit around at his feet and ask questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I raised my hand. I wanted to know some secret, and uh, I said, what advice would you have for a young writer? And he said, uh, always make it hard. Hmm. And I wrote it down in my notebook at the time. And, you know, I loved his poems, and we fell in love with him when he was there. So I took to heart what he said. And uh, as I began to grow and develop as a writer, uh, and as a student of poetry, uh, I began to realize more and more how right he was. That as, as we as we work hard and, and try to get better, we reach certain plateaus. And and it's very easy and tempting to stay there because because it's easier to do. The work is easier. We mm -hmm. figured it out. We figured something out. But his advice at that point is to make it hard all over again and and uh, try something else. So that's what's driven me from book to book. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think uh, one big difference between this book and the previous book is that if you if you count uh, or, or, or or and listen carefully, this book is much more regular musically. Mm -hmm. uh, it's either accentual syllabic or accentual syllabic uh, with with not very many completely free verse poems. Um, but, you know, what I like to do is think about the, the musical line as the range of options instead of as one fixed thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I think that a collection can include and, and maybe even should include a variety of forms. Uh, um, I like the way that forms test us as writers. And, and you know, it's a way that writers have measured the value of what they're doing for a, lo a long time. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you go about deciding where to go next with that? Is it, are you just sort of guided by what's seeming like where you don't want to go almost, or is it that you come across a new form, you read a poem maybe that you, you admire and, and go in that direction. How do you decide how to make it hard? You know, many, many years ago, I, I figured out an answer to the question that, that because I, I didn't want to be coy about it, but I didn't really have an answer when people would ask me, what do you write about? Uh, um, and, and then I read a novel by Milan Kundera, uh, who we lost not too long ago. Uh, and uh, from then on, whenever anyone asked me that question, I said that I try to write about the unbearable lightness of being. <laughs> that's my subject. Mm -hmm. and, and it was then and, and it still is. That's, that's exactly what I try to write about. Yeah. Yeah. As I understand that, as I understand that metaphor. <laughs> well, that's a great way to put it. Definitely. You can see that in all the poems. Let's do another one. Um, next on your list, we had, um, oh, what was it next? We had a uh, um, anecdote, anecdote for the impresario of my brain. If you want to do that one. Yeah. Anecdote for the impresario of my brain. Please don't judge me on the basis. <laughs> the dead people I see are not happy when they know that I see them. They frown a strange death mask at me from passing motor cars or in the dimly lit hallways of unfamiliar buildings like the one where the keeper of records presides. He knows everything about us, but he doesn't know that he is dead. When I ask for my records, he refuses to look at me so that the darkness gathered in the corners begins to reel outward exactly like a tiny tornado. If you see this, then you know what the fuck I'm talking about, climbing the ladder and the rigmarole of other places where the sidewalks are poured in a different paradigm than ours and the rivers are not interrogated about their direction and so flow the bright waters straight through you at how it feels later on back in custody. Yeah, and that was uh, uh, Anecdote of the Impresario of My Brain. Um, one of those brilliant poems with such a long uh, lines at the end, too, uh, that back in custody, a great turn um, from uh, On the Shores of Welcome Home. Um, so so what is your writing process like? We talked about the the 
you know, it's all based on the music. Um, and, and how do you, do you, do you write every day? Do you sit down and, and wait for a, a sort of a sense of the music that's being, you know, played for you somehow internally. And then you follow that. I think I, I always think of how, um, you know, Billy Collins mentions, um, that it's like, he feels like a bloodhound, like following a scent and, and do you like so, sort of follow the sound like a bloodhound would a scent or, or how do you go about, you know, how do you know a poem's going to start and, and, and how do you go from there? Yeah, it's a little different lately. The last uh, six years, I've been trying to uh, teach myself to write prose fiction. So uh, I've written six novel manuscripts and 50 stories. Hmm. So um, most of my writing intention has been uh, there. But uh, my radar has never turned off to uh, poems. So uh, they accumulate as well along the way. And then after a while, if I accumulate enough of them, I start to get an idea for the shape of a, a, a collection. So I'll, I'll work on that in between. And it's a nice break from prose. It's nice to go back and forth. You know, I also paint, and I, and I like to go back and forth to that too. It just, it just takes the pressure off. Uh, uh, writing every day is hard, and painting every day is hard. Uh, writing prose every day is hard, but uh, uh, I think I'm finally figuring some stuff out. With, with the poem, I, I, it's just really is about what I hear, and I and I love Billy Collins' metaphor, and, and it is like that. It's like staying on a scent that you pick up, uh, a, a musical scent. You know, I'm really interested in in what's underneath of things as a writer. Um, and I mean that in a literal sense and in a figurative sense as well. Um, but the way that I grew up as a student, especially with a teacher like Charles Simic, was that if you want to find something strange, just look at what's there. That's pretty fucking strange already. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a great lesson for me as a writer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mentioned uh, you know moving to prose in your in your last book, um, Among Alms in Ambush, um, is a book of prose poems or prose vignettes is how they're described, and um, and and so, um, what was the transition like to that? And uh, maybe before we do that though, there's the the Tale of the Tortoise is a poem that we have. It's online here at Juxtapose Magazine. Do you want to read that so we can get a sense of of what you're doing in uh, in that newer book? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you for asking. So this is the first, uh, the first poem in this manuscript, and it's meant to be, uh, it's meant to be a warning or an introduction. I, I like the word warning better. Tale of the tortoise. I don't know how the tortoise got in through the fence and past the neighborhood dogs that run loose once the sun is down. But I found her near a nest of her eggs where she, where the garden had already begun to turn to autumn. It seemed she'd found a home there, and who was I to tell her otherwise? So I brought her straw to make a better bed, and food I never saw her eat, but that disappeared from the tin plate where I put it. I don't remember now how long it took, but she kept the eggs warm until they hatched 
and her many babies scrambled out in every direction until she rounded them up again into her care. Now I have to tell you that there never was a tortoise, only one that I wanted to be there. There never was a fence to crawl under or neighborhood dogs for someone to step around down the dark alley. There was no dark alley. There was no nest or eggs, no straw, no hope for anything. But I did find a tortoise in my yard one morning where it had laid its eggs in a nest it had made with mowed grass. I don't know where she came. I don't know where she came from, but perhaps she was a neighbor's pet and there was a zoo nearby. I called the police to see if they knew what to do and they came quickly and confirmed that it was a tortoise with eggs. Sometimes you need to tell the story to fill a hole in your mind or to try and mend something that's been torn by a violent wave that washed through you once. There was no tortoise and no policeman. I know. I have to stop telling you this. I want you to believe me. It's all about the story. It's all we have. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, Tale of the Tortoise by uh, by Bruce Weigel from uh, Juxtapros and then his newest book, um, and uh, so, Bruce, you know, you can hear the music in that. Um, and, and one of the things that people always say, uh, you know, if they're going to be upset about, you know, that I haven't published their poems recently or at all, and uh, that they don't like what they're seeing on Rattle, is they, oh, it's just prose with line breaks. And I always say, well, if you can't hear the music, I don't know how I can help you. But you can hear the music in that prose. Um, and so why is that Why is that a prose poem, and why not add line breaks and make it a poem? I mean, what's the difference between a uh, a, a prose poem and a regular poem, and, and why why take away the line breaks when it's something that, you know, we have to aid with the music, and it's musical anyway? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've been writing prose poems since I was an undergraduate because our teachers at Oberlin encouraged us to do it, and, and in fact, assigned us to write prose poems and exposed us to a lot of really good prose poem writers, both European and American. Uh, so I had a real foundation for it, but I still never understood it. Uh, and then I went to graduate school and, and Charles Simic wrote them as well. Uh, but once again, I, I just couldn't figure out what the form really, really meant. Even though I wrote some myself and even published some, I still didn't know what I was doing when I did it. So uh, uh, several years ago, I went to uh, uh, Appalachian State to teach for a semester, and I had this beautiful uh, mountain uh, cottage uh, and taught just one class and, and had all the rest of my time for uh, uh, meeting students and, and, and writing. So um, I, I wanted to try something new. Uh, and I, I got the idea of, of, of trying to write a prose poem again. And then, but before I did, I, I, I racked my brain a little bit about just what that meant, what that was. And I, and I paid attention, you know, literally to the title. It's a prose poem. So to me, that meant it had to have elements of both of those genres in it, mm -hmm. if you're going to call it that. Uh, if you're going to call it prose poem, then how can it not have poetic elements of some one kind or another? And, 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 the, and the same thing is true with 
with prose. How can you call it prose if it doesn't have prosaic elements? Um, so if it has both, then it's, you can call it a prose poem. Well, I started with that presumption. And then what I did was I wrote most of the poems first in lines. And not only in lines, but a lot of them in metrical lines. Uh, sometimes even iambic pentameter lines. Uh, but then as I worked on the poems and revised them, I shifted to prose and I ignored the metrical breaks, but the br metrical breaks occur within the prose. So that became my idea of what a prose poem was. And then I wrote, uh, I wrote a bunch of them and in this book, I tried to pick the ones I thought were the strongest. And, and what is it that makes makes a prose poem um, one of the strongest? Is there is there some features that they have in common? And by the way, I'm asking because uh, we have a prompt at the end of uh, every episode for next week, and and so a hint for everybody that might be uh, part of the prompt for next week. But but so how uh, what what makes a good prose poem uh, versus something that that might not work as a prose poem? You know, it's it's a matter of taste, I think, because there's several different varieties that I admire. You know, I, I, I like Russell Edson's poems. Um, they're, they're like little magic boxes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I also like Benjamin Perret's prose poems a lot. And I like Charles Baudelaire's prose poems a lot that are very, very different. And Arthur Rambeau's prose poems and Robert Bly's and James Wright's. And they're all so distinctly different. I think, you know, what they have in common is a richness of language and a clarity of thought and a, a subject that engages. I think that uh, if, if, if you can take advantage of two genres within one form, then why not try that? Why not do that? It's, a, it's an interesting uh, challenge. It's not easy to do. It's easy to do badly. Mm -hmm. but, but it's it's just like metrical poetry. It's it's easy to write bad metrical poetry. What's hard is to write good metrical poetry, and and what's hard to write is good prose poems. I wrote uh, twice as many as there are in this book. That's 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 how many it took to get th this book, whether you like it or not. Um, so I tried to take it seriously. Yeah. And what would you say is the usual practice as far as uh, abandoning poems? Uh, do you, is it, is it 50% work a good ratio for you? Is that typical of regular poems too? Or is that, uh, do you abandon more than that or less? Uh, I think anymore, I've I, I been in less than that. Mm -hmm. It used to be a lot more. I think now I, I, uh, I'm more serious about, uh, uh, where I start something, um, I'm not maybe as willing to uh, jump on every uh, flamboyant thing that I could as I was when I was a younger writer. So I don't fail then, therefore, as much. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it, it is one of the things it's like anything else. The more you do it, uh, hopefully the better you get at it. If you know, and if you don't, then it's time to find something else to do. Mm hmm. Well, uh, let's do, uh, if you have any questions, I should say, for uh, Bruce, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or uh, YouTube. We have uh, a number of questions already that I'll, I'll try to pass along a few. But let's hear another poem, Bruce. And uh, I think what we have left, uh, we'll do two more poems. Uh, the Long-Term Consequences on page 32. 
um, is the next one here of, of um on the shores of welcome home yes let me just say that the the reference to pegasus uh in the in the poem in the title is uh on my part not a reference uh to the greek version of the story but to what the military called an operation uh, in Vietnam. And the operation turned out to be pretty famous because uh, it was an operation to relieve the Marines who had been encircled by uh, NVA soldiers at a place called Quezon. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, problem was so large that an entire division of American soldiers was sent up there away to the north uh, it was called the first air cav division which i was a part of and we only learned later that it was a draw to get us up there while the nva soldiers moved south to the central highlands to begin the tet offensive um so that's the allusion to pegasus here the long-term consequences of the convoy leading to pegasus in the fallen world or when I packed myself up for the loony bin, I didn't know it was the loony bin at the time was my lousy problem, and I blamed myself for that. And I ended up in the field I know is littered with mines because I've seen it before beside a river named Kalu, if my brain allows me just one memory, one sane moment, like the one, the photon bright flashes, the doctors held inches from my face, brought back a radiant time that no one in the room could know but me, like the field of mines I stood next to on the LZ and walked around more than once and watched a parachute of something drift off target and land almost softly. The lights, the doctors flashed in my eyes and the saline they pumped into my veins in the 30 hours without sleep brought that morning right back into the room and that morning became the day of the longest night of the seven dead in a single bunker from artillery fired across an invisible line in the dark night of small arms fire along the river and movement in the high grass voices radio noise sometimes even their music night of the separation of my soul from my body such a violent tearing i couldn't even feel and that was uh the long-term consequences of the convoy leading to pegasus in the fallen world uh that's our poems from um on the shores of welcome home by bruce weigel and, and bruce we talked about this a little bit at the very beginning but how much you know reading the poems it makes me wonder how much the poetry saved you i mean was it something that you had to get out and and find you mentioned poetry as a way to solve problems what would have happened to you if you didn't have poetry to solve the problems that you had well of course i don't know but i i, I know that uh my life wouldn't be nearly as fulfilled and fulfilling as it is i know that for sure mm-hmm. uh, and I think uh, I also wouldn't have learned to look as closely at things as poetry has taught me to look. Uh, I, I do believe that stories save us, though. Uh, our stories save us. And, and uh, you know, if I consider where I began, 
uh, and think about the, the neighborhoods where I grew up. Um, literary matters was not where I was, was headed. And uh, I think that, uh, especially coming back from the war, to have something, to have the discipline of poetry to devote myself to uh, can certainly be said to have saved me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and sort of along those lines too, do you think uh, that, um, you know, you've taught, you've taught in colleges to students, you've taught, um, you know, veterans, of course, to poetry. Um, Do you think that it's important as far as becoming a great poet to have life experiences? Like would a lot of poets I've talked to would recommend, you know, don't go to an MFA program, go out and live life first and then have something to write about and then, uh, and then come back and write and learn how to write when there's that, you know, you have stories to tell. Uh, but other people say that we have all the stories we need by uh, our teenage years, and so that's plenty. Uh, where do you fall on that continuum? Do you think your best students have been, you know, the people who have the, you know, lived the the most, the hardest lives so far? You know, uh, uh, Bill not told me a story once about a, a student that he had who uh, sat way in back of the room. And uh, she had long hair and let it fall over her face so you couldn't see her face. And she wore sort of heavy black clothes to kind of hide inside. And uh, it was at a a prestigious school. It was at Emerson. And uh, she was among, you know, a lot of smart, talented people. Uh, But he said... uh, the first workshop, uh, it became abundantly clear that no one was anywhere near this woman. Mm-hmm. And he said, you always got to watch out for the weirdo in the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. <laughs> he says, those are the good ones. Those, mm-hmm. The strange ones who want to hide in the back, you know. Uh, yeah, it kind of feels like uh, you know, as we as a gathering of poets is always a gathering of the people who hide in the back, <laughs> but there's no there's no one left in the room besides for those. That's right. <laughs> um, so there's a question. Uh, Cindy Gore wanted me to talk about this, and I'm not familiar with this. So she says, please talk about your book of poems from captured documents that you and T. Win translated. Yeah. Yeah, I used to uh, uh, teach every summer for 30 years uh, at a place called the William Joyner Center for the Study of War and Social Consequences at University of Massachusetts, Boston, which was directed by a visionary guy named Kevin Bowen. Um, and uh, when I was there one one summer uh, in the library, I discovered that there was an archive that uh, the university had purchased uh, and it was an archive of captured documents. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we were trained to do as soldiers was any time anyone found any paper on anybody alive or dead, the first thing to do was take all the paper away and turn it in to whomever, I don't know, to somebody. And and uh, it would be uh, uh, put on uh, microfiche and, and, uh, and studied sometimes to see if there was any military value to it. Uh, often it, uh, there wasn't. Often it was just diaries and stuff like that. So I was looking at this archive one day with a with a Vietnamese woman and the archives at the library, 
And I, I saw what looked like poems in Vietnamese in these notebooks. So I said, what is that? And uh, the Vietnamese woman said, well, it's a, they're poems. And I said, who, who, whose poems are these? She said, well, they're the poems that the soldiers wrote. Hmm. Uh, and I said, well, why do they write poems? <laughs> and she said, that's what the soldiers did when they missed their families and their loved ones. They, they wrote poems about them. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I turned uh, to the Vietnamese woman I was with. Her name is Tang, Tang Nguyen. And I said, can we do a rough translation? I knew no Vietnamese at the time. I said, can we do a rough translation of one of these poems? So we spent an hour doing one short poem, and it was exquisitely beautiful to me. Mm. And I said, so now let me get this straight. These poems that are here in this in this archive, in these notebooks, these are just regular soldiers writing in their notebooks about the war and about their families and about their lovers and about all this stuff, right? Yeah, 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 that's what it is. Mm. So we spent the next uh, 18 months or two years translating a book of them and published it as as uh, a book called Poems from Captured Documents. Hmm. I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I definitely want to check that out. What was the, um, were, were there any common themes besides, you know, that, that came across? Like, like what was the, how similar were the, were the poems between each other? Well, that, that, that's, well, not only between each other, but similar to our poems about mm-hmm. being on, being in the war too. That's what was amazing to encounter these poems was that you realize I realized maybe for the first time in my life, oh my God, they're just like us. Hmm. They suffered the same way we suffered. Hmm. And is that the, is that what triggered your work in um, in sort of bridging the the divide between the U.S. and Vietnam? Yeah, that was the that was the first project that got me interested in Vietnamese poetry, and then I decided to. Uh, devote myself more seriously to the study of the language so that I could become a more effective co-translator mm-hmm. and, and I've been and doing for 25 years. What would you say that, that you've learned? Is there something that stands out as something you've learned from, from that experience? I, yeah. You know, the, the amazing thing about translating is that you learn more about your own language than you otherwise would learn mm-hmm. because you're constantly forced into finding the right way to say something in English when you're translating, especially from a highly contextual language like Vietnam. Uh, so so you're forced to broaden your regard that you have for certain modes of expression. And, and that's a good thing for your writing. Uh, so I think that's the most important thing I've learned. Hmm. Well, one last uh, question, and then we'll uh, do one last poem too. But, but you mentioned sort of making it difficult as being a thing that you try to do as you move through poetry to keep it always, you know, challenge yourself. Is there one form or style of writing that you found the most challenging? You know, how, however you look at the form, I, I, I'm most challenged by the, what we call a sonnet, hmm. either a metrical or otherwise. E- even a poem in 14 lines is a very difficult thing to do. It's very challenging to get from point A to point Z in 14 lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I like to uh, force myself to try to do that. Uh, and, and, I, and I think most of the time it brings out the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like those, you know, the cha- when you challenge yourself, it's when you, you know, you, you have the opportunity to rise to the challenge, which makes you know, that, that right. friction makes for a lot of heat. Um, that's right is that is that your your den that you're in your study 
Uh, it's our it's our alternate location in the Woodlands, Texas. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it looks really comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, mm-hmm. So let's uh, close out with one last poem. I, we have uh, "Crazy with His Anguish and Dumb with Grief" is the the last poem we had on the list. Okay, so remember where we began with uh, the elephant gift in the room. So this is the conclusion to that story. Crazy with his anguish and dumb with grief. The air above the moving water, the air above the moving water, cool spring air above the moving water. The river comes from where it goes. Stand in the deeply moving river long enough and you can feel what time is and what time is not. You can be jolted from one way of seeing into a wholly other way of strangers crossing over who don't belong among us. A conspiracy of the dead, you could call them. You could call them a shroud that moves through the room like a tiny black cloud and then disappears, although stranger things have happened. The air above the moving water is cool in spring. I believe in a paradise of words, like the words you find in the great rocks in the river, and the words high in the branches on night wind, and the words that tell the secret kept for so long it can never be forgiven. I believe in the leaves turning up before the storm is even in our sight. In a vacuum, there is no sorrow or longing. Everything they taught us was about living with nothing about how to die. The air above the moving water is cool in the spring. The wheel turns and you're back again to the same place. The less time you have, the more beautiful everything in the world appears. Yeah, and that was uh, Crazy with His Anguish and Dumb with Grief from On the Shores of Welcome Home by Bruce Weigel. Um, all of Bruce's poems are just uh, lessons in, you know, both in poetry and in humanity. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Bruce. I've been a fan of your work for such a long time. It's really great to meet you in person, finally. Yeah, nice to meet you, too. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate your support. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. Yeah, thanks again. So, uh yeah, so we're going to move on now to, uh, and Bruce, you can stick around if you want or uh, head out, but Ernest Hilbert's going to be on to talk about his newest book, uh, Storm Swimmer. So uh, let's see. Yeah, we'll just do a, a quick transition. Why don't we just jump right in? I've never figured out how to do, if we should have a full break or if we should just jump right into our bonus poet. But our bonus poet today is Ernest Hilbert, who I mentioned uh, was on Rattlecast number 121, but it was the Halloween episode. Because uh, Ernest has uh, a, a book of spooky stories of Americana that we talked about back then. We talked about some of his other work, too. But he has a new book, Storm Swimmer, that's just out. It won the... Um, I put it on the screen. I'll just hold it up, I guess. It won the um, Vassar Miller Prize in Poetry. It's right here, Storm Swimmer. And here is Ernest Silbert. Hey, Ernest. How you doing? Hello. Hi, Tim. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Uh, it's been a bit. It's been like a year and a half, almost, maybe almost two years since was you Was were... it? I thought it was just this past... No, Halloween. that was episode 121, and we are on 202 now. So time, oh time's fun when you're having flies. <laughs> well, yeah, right. <laughs> you're, uh, you have uh, kids, which I, you know, from this book, which is a lot about, about having a, you know, being a dad and, and raising kids in this sort of, you know, difficult world that we live in. Just life itself is always going to have challenges. 
sure. And uh, that's a lot of what this book is about. But, uh, but dad, yeah. or the kids would appreciate the dad joke there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but tell us, uh, tell us what you've been up to in the last, uh, you know, almost two years. Uh, how have you been? Yeah. I can't believe it's been that long. It's so funny. Well, um, you know, I just got the kiddo to bed. Uh, he lost a tooth, so he's pretty excited. Oh, nice. Uh, it's been a while since he's lost one, so he wanted to look at it under uh, a jeweler's loop and under a magnifying glass and analyze it. So he's excited. He was excited for that, and it was his first day at camp at the uh, Academy of Natural Sciences, which we call the Dinosaur Museum down on Logan Circle here in Philadelphia, where, uh, where I'm speaking to you from. Uh, things have been okay. Um, we've got, I've got this new book came out in April, mm -hmm. uh, which people seem to like and um, which I'm pretty happy with. And um, I'm keeping busy being a dad, yeah, going to work, That is a good <laughs> amount of work. So let's yeah. do, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I could pick whatever poems we wanted to read. And I was looking at the, there's a opening poem, Storm Swimmer, the title poem starts as a sort of a preface, but then uh, Pelagic is the next poem. I think that sets, you know, sets up the book pretty well. Do you want mm -hmm. to read that to start with? And we'll talk more about the book as a whole. Sure. Uh, which one? The, 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 the prelude or? Uh, or the Pelagic, the, the pen page five Pelagic. there. Yep. I don't know Pelagic. if I'm saying that right. That's not a word I, I know. Pelagic <laughs> sounds better, so I'm just going to say There you that go. Way. I'm sure you're right. But <laughs> it's not a word you hear uh, in common conversation. No, that is the first and, time and, I've and said what, that. That's for sure. And, and what it means, it's a little bit of um, a clue of, of, of what's to come in the poem, because although uh, the scenario here is, of course, swimming right, right off the coast, Pelagic refers to deep water far from land. Uh, so this is uh, Pelagic, the first poem in the book proper. Uh, as Tim mentioned, Storm Swimmer is a short poem that serves as a prelude before the first chapter. So this is Pelagic from Storm Swimmer. I face an ocean. It's lurid rush and pull, the same as ever, though I have aged. I step in, small cool splashes on my calves, then shoulder through hard linebacker waves. I dive beneath a breaker and surface in hissing warm swells, brine on my lips again. I swim a while, then break to breathe and float in foam. A clouded butterfly, I'm sorry, a clouded yellow butterfly has trailed me out and veers nearby. It spins and banks above, my body its nearest ground. It lights on my chest, wings unhurriedly closing like bellows. I strive to stay still. It's off, fast as a blink, alive in the sun. I spin over, face down in the lapping amber glass, the pelagic summer roll of original sea, the sandy glint of bubbles climbing in the goggles pane, my arm swiping down in time like a fluke, mottled in swarming undersea light. The breakers roll in to hide the beach from me. I imagine I'm in a world, only ocean and sky. Four billion years ago, 
or in a time to come, floating without the earth to save me as long as I might. Yeah, and that was pelagic, I'll say from now on, uh, from Storm Swimmer, the, uh, one of the early poems in the book. In a surprising, uh, you know, a rare book uh, dealer uh, and a formal poet swimming out in the middle of storms deep into the ocean is not something that I would have expected, especially here in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. so, so how much, uh, how long does that go back, swimming in, uh, in, in turbulent waters? And I, oh, obviously ever since, a metaphor for more, but... Uh, well, certainly. I mean, you're, you're uh, on the Pacific. I'm on the Atlantic. So I, I grew up uh, not too far from Philadelphia in South Jersey uh, near the Pine Barrens. And on the other side of the Pine Barrens is uh, the, the Barrier Islands. Uh, and the Atlantic and the bays. Uh, and so I grew up going to those beaches my whole life, ever since I was very tiny. There's pictures of me not even a year old on those on those beaches. And that's pretty rough swimming. That's not easy. I mean, the, the bays are not really very swimmable, uh, but the, uh, the ocean tends to throw up really big waves there uh, when you're on the island facing out because there's nothing between you and, and Europe or Africa. I mean, it's just straight. So, so that kind of swimming, you, you have to get out past the heavy, the heavy waves to, to swim at all, if you can, mm-hmm. um, and, and do that. And I've just done it recently. We do it all the time because Philadelphia is still, if you time it right, you know, an hour, you know, from, from, we call it the shore. Mm-hmm. You don't call, you don't use the word shore in, in California. You, <laughs> you call it the beach, right? Or the coast. Uh, yeah, we do. We definitely we go to the beach. <laughs> we call it the shore. Are you going to go down the shore when you're at the shore? The thing you go on to made of sand is called the beach, but you go to the shore. Uh-huh. Uh, so no, absolutely. And I love w- uh, wild swimming uh, when I can, uh, like up in, up in Maine, even in really cold waters, just, just park the car and just get in, go in the water uh, as long as you can. It's a little hypothermic uh, is, you know, you, you reach a point where you're almost euphoric because the, the cold is reaching a point where you really need to get out. Mm-hmm. But it feels so good. Uh-huh. You know, it's, and my wife what was she, and son, they don't want to get in water that cold. But I love that. And so, no, I swim as much as I can. I swim almost every day. And uh, here in the city, we swim in the city pools, which is not wild swimming. Well, it's a little wild because it gets a little crowded. <laughs> an elbow in the everybody's, face, yeah. Everybody's invited, you know, and, what, and especially on these hot days, you just have every everybody in the city is in these pools. So, no, swimming is, is a really important thing for me. And I spent a lot of time doing it. But the reason it's been turning up in my books, uh, the last few books, actually, is because I use it as an analogy for understanding uh, life, if that's not too grand, because you can you're, you're in an element that is much more powerful than you are uh, and vastly larger and more and more uh, uh, ancient. And you can control yourself up to a point using discipline, exertion. Uh, a struggle for survival or you do it for joy and happiness whatever reason but you still are only able to control yourself within the whims of this larger thing so you you swimming against the tide or against the current of of a river is impossible and uh, you can't you know waves can just throw you up on the beach or drown you and so it is sort of like we do what we can in our lives within the larger element in which we uh, are sustained. So that that could be uh, that you're the family, uh, the, the, you're the city you live in, uh, the political system you're in, the economic system you're in, within the larger flow of history, uh, you know, you can only do so much. So you, you do have some control, but only within the, the limits of what you can do within that much more 
uh, powerful medium in which you are suspended. So there, there's that, you know, and then and, and beyond that, just, you know, sort of there's just something almost magic. Uh, I don't know if if you do much swimming, but it, it really is a magical thing. I mean, we you, you feel almost like you're returned to a primordial state if you're in the water long enough. Mm-hmm. So, so it's always it's always captured me uh, in that way. And so I wanted to do, you know, in the first poem, Storm Swimmer is really just about a stoic approach to things uh, and, and just expecting nothing, you know, and and just and just preparing yourself and just diving yourself into whatever it is and facing it, whether it's a fear uh, or even a preparation for aging and, and death or whatever you want to say. That poem ends with the uh, imperative mood, which is dive, which is a command, you know, because it's also written in the second person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that's, I hope that answers some of your questions. No, it definitely did. And, and my follow up too. So um, uh, the other thing I want to just, how does the, how did the book come together? Because we have, um, you know, how does a book do that? You had, you know, last time we saw you, you had a book that was out not too long ago, and then you're working on poems. Um, yeah. How does, how do, how do you know that you have a book and, and how do you know, you know, that was going to be the central metaphor? It's such a great metaphor for the book. Did you know that going in? Did you yeah, pull the other like... poems, no pun intended, that, um, <laughs> um, that, that fit that? Or were you just found yourself always writing about this, these sort of same themes, and then you realized you had a book once you had them all written? How, how did the book come together? Well, when I went on the show, now that you point out, it was nearly two year, year and a half ago. So we we decided to do my 2015 book for the Halloween episode because that's a little bit darker book. That's Caligulan. And those water poems started appearing in that. Mm-hmm. And then the last one out uh, is the book that came out after that in 2019, where there are more of those. That book also is the first time that I have poems in the final chapter of that book anticipating uh my son's arrival you know um while my wife is pregnant in one of the poems and then when he's he's an infant and he's very small in those poems he's very tiny uh by the time 2023 rolls around i've been writing poems where he's he's actually moving around and be, mm-hmm. developing a personality and i'm starting to feel that fleeting uh sensation of just like time's getting away from me where where sometimes it feels like oh that was another lifetime ago when that happened but also in a blink of an eye it seems like everything's just going past me so fast like it it just happened or it was also a century ago and time is completely out of joint covid didn't help because i feel like that was a huge fissure in in the way we understand ourselves and society and history was just this big break, partly literally a break in the sense of everyone just having a chance to stop or having to stop, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also a break with all the history that came before it. Yeah. I mean, parenting is, it's a kind of quickening. That's for sure. I mean, I I, I think about when I moved to to LA, there were no seasons, you know, because it's, (laughs) it's LA. There's like, it rains for a day and they call it like the rainy season and that's all you get. (laughs) And, um, and, and I, there, it played a weird thing in my head where I didn't feel like time was passing because mm-hmm. it was like always the same season and it's, there's no like way to anchor. But when right. you have kids, all of a sudden, so much stuff is happening. They're changing so fast that it just feels yes. like time is like a rocket launcher. Yes. And suddenly, you know, yes. you're 43 and, and your kids are teenagers and you're like, what's going on? Yeah, and uh, yeah, crazy. and so the, the, book, the book definitely captures some of that feeling too. Good. I'm glad because it was a sense of being sort of out of control and also the level of I, I'm, I'm a sentimental person to, to begin with, you know. So um, 
once you're once you become a parent, uh, you know, you, you, you see pictures from a few years ago and it almost brings a tear to your eye when you see the kid was a few years younger. And, oh, do you remember that time they did this? And then the whole thing is like we got through covid together as a family, you know, and it was a scary time, you know, and it put you through through that as well. So there was a lot of emotion and, and, and most of my poems begin from a place of emotion. Uh, they don't come from ideas. I might get a notion for a technique or something like that, or a sound or uh, something I want to explore. But if there isn't an emotional spark that, that sort of forces me to do it, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 there's no demand for my poetry out there where people are saying, come on, let's go. Let's go get that assembly line working. We we're going to pay you millions of dollars. Yeah. So I think it has to mean something to me uh, in order to do it. And, and so you know, I I uh, I think it was Fro- Robert Frost said, "No tears in the poet, no tears in the reader." You know, and Allen Ginsberg said that he always he said he always wept during his writing his best poems. Uh, he was always weeping. You know, that's a bit of an exaggeration, I'm sure, but uh, I have to have that emotional thing. And having a child really really spurred that uh, in a moment. Uh, you know, any given moment, I'd suddenly freeze it and think, "I, I want to create a monument." to this moment and find a way to capture it and share it with other other people, make it as universal as possible, whether you have kids or not, whether, you know, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. uh, because everyone was a kid at some point. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and to try to make it as universal as possible. And, you know, so those are the two themes in the book and they sort of come together in the final poem, uh, Soul Unquiet Thing, where the water and the storm metaphor of being out of control uh it combines with the uh with the thoughts about about having a child and the child growing and growing away from you and things like that so the two the two are intertwined and they sort of wind up in that final poem yeah Uh, so you're right it is both of those things it's the water imagery and there's a lot of other there are other things in there which is just about how scary the world can be or how beautiful it can be there are, are other things in there it's not just family and swimming because you know, that almost sounds no, it's boring definitely, it's, you know, it, that it sounds like, like you know, a big it feels deal like you're you know? going along for the ride uh you know inside ernie's heart or something yeah, right. that's how it feels uh, so uh, you're, we, we got to move on to the open lines in a bit but let's do one more poem i don't know if you want to do that last poem soul and quiet thing or do you want to do something different um i'll do i was going to do how about this uh voltage crackles at the edge okay which page is that that is on page 17 okay and that's that's one of the childhood ones and that that one chapter i mean they are interspersed throughout the book but there is that one solid chapter uh, that is sort of chapter two is all about uh, this sort of thing so this is a poem that was so difficult to write i i, I just couldn't finish it and i couldn't get it published either because i i couldn't get it to feel like it was finished because it was too emotional for me and in any form i tried to read it i would get choked up you know, and it was it was too much. And uh, finally, I it was, you know uh, Jerry Cambridge, who's a great uh, I don't know if you you know him, but he's the editor of the Dark Horse, which is a Scottish transatlantic magazine of poetry and criticism. He's a great editor, and he accepted two things. He said, "I was thinking of accepting that, but it's just I, it's not." Right. I'm like, "Well, why don't you take it in hand and show me what you would do? Like, really, just finish it for me. Help me help me get it where I want it to be." And that's how it happened. That I, I couldn't finish it. it. Was too the material was too close too hot for me i didn't want to be sentimental you never want to do that uh, but you want to be honest and tender too and, uh, and so you know even then since then i read at the uh, westchester poetry conference just in june and i had to stop for a moment because i was getting a little 
cho- I didn't literally cry, but you could hear it in my voice. I won't do that tonight. I'm, I'm going to be a pro. Uh, and afterwards, an actor came up and he said, look, if, as a writer, if if you cry, it denies the audience the chance to do it. I thought oh, that's that a was a good point. Yeah, that's interesting. And then uh, Mark Jarman, the keynote speaker, came up and he said, listen, my wife is a singer. And whenever she feels overwhelmed emotionally, she thinks of doing laundry just as a way to keep the precision and the focus on on the performance and not let the emotion overwhelm. how do you how do you let the two come together just right that's that's a question for another day but here i'm going to read this voltage crackles at the edge and the um the washington post book club uh uh used this they uh they reprinted it uh with a little uh, little endorsement they have two hundred twenty thousand members so that was a a nice jump and i was so glad that they chose this it really redeemed my belief that this poem was worth spending years and years working on i mean literally i spent years working on so i hope it holds up to the expectations i have now (laughs) set up for it it's called voltage crackles at the edge there's thunder in the sun so says my son he says a lot of things he knows must not be true but wishes that they were. And so do I. Dragons ride in the dump truck. The cat is wearing my coat. The sky is filled with cottage cheese. The doggies row a boat. The baby bear is in the bath. That will live forever. And always be in love. Right here. Like this with waves that fly out 90 million miles to light up the book we read together. My son's eyes are big. He says we have to whisper or monsters might come in. He's not afraid of ghosts. For him, they're only things that can't be seen. And what is to be feared in that? He thinks that he's a ghost when hiding behind the window curtain. Though he cannot resist the giggling fits that give him away and back to us again. We're ghosts. We are. You're right, my little one. We're ghosts. But filled with spirit fire that floats from somewhere else and keeps us here for now. And when we're only ghosts, I know we'll stay in love, like now, because we lived by love and took from love our magic lives. Objects bending time and space alone with what we love. Yeah, beautiful poem that was uh thank you voltage crackles at the edge again from uh ernest hilbert's new book storm swimmer which you can find um on his website of course and ernest uh, you know, <laughs> we didn't even mention uh formalism somehow but you can feel you know the feel the meter and the 
I don't. Is that there's there a form of that that felt like um you know free oh, verse that's actual free verse? It felt it, like it is free. You're there. right. It's it is free verse, but he uses a verse technique freely. It's not regular. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And, and the whole book again, uh, as your work always is, just has that strong metrical ear for poetry the whole way through. Or a pleasure to read and a pleasure to have you as a guest. It always is. Thank Glad you. to have you back uh, to see what you're up to now, Ernest. It is a pleasure to be here. Yep. Take care, and I hope to see you soon with the next book. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Yeah, once again, that was Ernest Hilbert. Uh, his newest book is Storm Swimmer. You can find it uh, on his website, and his website is um, ernesthilbert.com. Um, just go to Ernest Hilbert. That's E E R N E S T. Hilbert is H I L B E R T.com to find his newest book and all of his previous books and a whole lot of other interesting stuff. So, one of the, does a lot for poetry in the midst of doing everything else. Uh, that was Ernest Hilbert once again, and a great uh, bonus guest. Hope you enjoyed that. Now we're going to go to our open lines, like we always do. And uh, like I did last week, I forgot my slide. So I'm just going to put up the email address right now. It's, so email your poem first to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com. And then follow the Zoom link. Um, I'm going to paste the Zoom link into YouTube and into Facebook, um, both chat windows. If you have a poem, but only if you have a poem, um, jump on the Zoom and share it. Uh, there goes the link deployed and pinned to the top. And uh, uh, if you w- just want to listen and enjoy the open lines, though, just sit right where you are and uh, we will have more poetry. Um, but if you'd like to share a poem, jump on the Zoom right now. It's going to be a one poem limit per customer this episode. Uh, we definitely want to have the bonus. There's not all that much time for the open line, so make sure it's one poem, maximum two pages. Um, but I'm looking forward to the open lines. We have a prompt. You can share whatever you want, though. You can do the prompt poem, which is a glossa. Or you could do uh, anything else you'd like, so feel free to share it now. And I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. We have a a good group of people here already. We have uh, 14 people on the Zoom. Um, Again, it's going to be a one poem poem minimum, one poem maximum as well. Uh, The prompt for this week, I'll put it on the screen and, and then tell you I failed. (laughs) <laughs> but the prompt for this week was to write a glossa or glossa. I'm not, I still don't know how to pronounce it. Um, but in her poem, I realized that uh, Diane Seuss pronounced it glossa. So we'll go with glossa to write a glossa and uh, set in the distant future to kind of with a nod to um, the post-apocalyptic feel of Virgil Suarez's book that we had last week. Um, and, uh, and so that was the prompt. And, and I worked on it. I had, I thought I had, you know, a, a glossa of the form. You take four lines from a poet. Um, you quote them as the epigram. And then those are the last lines of four stanzas. What I didn't realize for a glossa is that it's 10 lines each. And that's a pretty long poem. So what I tried to do was make a, um, I tried to take a Kay Ryan poem since she has really short lines. Uh, I thought, well, that's the quickest way to do a glossa, right? Have really short lines, have like three words per line. But then there was one line that she just used it in such a weird way, I realized, that I couldn't figure out a way to get around that line. So that poem is still a work in progress. It's like two-thirds done. But I'm just like stuck at this little hinge of a really strange way of phrasing something that Kay Ryan had. So with 10 minutes to go in the show, I did a quick um, uh, a quick hyben. And uh, this was a, based on a little bit of... Um, a story that, that a poem in one of Bruce Weigel's books reminded me of. 
And, uh, and so there's just one line about a, a, someone who had a pet wolf. And it reminded me of the time, well, you'll hear the story really quickly. This is Square Knot. That time Dad asked if we wanted to see a real wolf, and so we piled into the old pickup and headed down the lakeside road to watch it pacing in its little pen while he drank beer on a lawn chair as that lonely creature's silent feet beat their line in the brambles and a single rope held close the post. Then the haiku. Young artist drawing inside the line she draws. That is my little hyben for today. Hope you enjoyed that. And let's see what you have for your poems. Hopefully, I, I don't know if... I know uh, we have a glossa from uh, Gianthi. I know uh, Katie Dozier wrote a glossette. So uh, did, anybody else, uh, did anybody else complete the full glossa? We will see. Let's jump... Oh, we got some hands raised. Let's go first to uh, Nancy Sobinick. She says she's got one. Hey, Nancy, are you there? I, I am. <laughs> hey, I saw your hand raised. So, uh, so you did. You did manage to pull off yeah. the, the glossa, huh? I did, but I had the same problem you had. Sometimes the syntax of the line doesn't really fit with what you're trying to say in the previous line. So it, <laughs> it's a complicated form. It is. It's a tough form, and, and the and it just I, I didn't want to use it the same way that that Kay Ryan did. And so I was kind of like, oh, I'm trapped. Like, how, I can't figure out how to get around this little, it was like a little trap. And it was just like waiting there on the path for me to fall into. And then, uh, and then there it was. So, so what did you, uh, let me pull it up. Uh, but, but so how did you, what, what did you pick? Who did you pick to start with? Uh, William Blake, Auguries of Innocence. And um, so mine's a four, ten, four stances, ten lines. I tried to do it in iambic pentameter, which is also sometimes described that way, but that didn't work too well for me. So, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to pull it up too on the screen. So it's a uh, climate change merges with Dante's fourth circle. Very interesting title <laughs> with a Blake epigram. Uh, let's hear it whenever yeah. you're ready. I'll, I'll put it over on the screen. Go ahead. Okay, I'm waiting for it to show up on my screen. Oh, Should I be going to copy? Yeah, I'm sorry because because of the delays and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry. Okay, so Auguries of Innocence by William Blake starts with, to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And then there's just a little side note that Dante's fourth circle is avarice or greed. And the poem starts, we grab all we can hold, hoarders and squanderers both, Watch as coal-tinged skeins again and again slip their payload, plink raindrops on scoured bottomlands. We strain, taut as a cow's skull strung with calico roses, determined from where we stand to see a world in a grain of sand. Even the sand is seared, the blast furnace sun bakes a cracked cake. Our craving insatiable, we become gleaners of greenery's former bower the heartlands severed heads. We are past the signposts, past the critical hour to see a heaven in a wildflower. To burn or drown, land and air takes turns. We push north on our diaspora, arable soil, potable water, and a top that can keep spinning our jewels of the hinterlands. Bank accounts, cars, houses, all rusted cans without an opener. Stripped of illusion, we newly understand one may only hold infinity in the palm of your hand. 
Traveling light snips stitches from the frippery of notions we must let go. Many have let many have died, unable to drop their heavy load. Pushing harder will only devour our, our remaining strength. What's left of time, this season of heat, is the breaking of the circle to regain power and eternity in an hour. Oh, that was great. I mean, that was the full gloss, so you did it. <laughs> Ten lines, four stanzas, got the whole thing in there. And it's a poet respond poem, too, because everybody is living in Dante's fourth circle right now. So uh, that's a perfect I was trying to, you know, I was trying to combine, you know, um, Dante, William Blake, and climate change all in one poem. <laughs> that's he pretty, did. Uh, he definitely did. Great job, Dante. That's, a, that's an excellent, excellent example of the glossa. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. Yep. Take care. Yep. Yeah. Once again, uh, that was uh, Nancy Sobanik with uh, Climate Change Merges with Dante's Fourth Circle. And let's see. And so we've never used, for some reason, we've never used the hands. But when I mentioned hand raise, now tons of people are raising their hands because they have uh, glosses. And let's uh, let's go to Laura Berg next. Hello. Hey, Laura. How you doing? I'm okay. So I tried the glossa today. It's, you know, it's, it's a fresh first draft that's sure to um, evolve. And I found it um, quite challenging because I don't usually write long poems and they're long. Yeah, I know, me too. That was the yeah, so I, I really ended up, basically, I ended up putting a whole life in, in, in there. You know, so here's what's the funny life. is, um, as I was uh, thinking about the form to do, um, I, something, I think something in Virgil's poem, I don't remember what, uh, last week's guest reminded me of the, that poem by Dan Seuss. And I would say, oh, let's do a glossa about the, you know, some kind of the future. And then uh, when I pulled it up for, uh, during the show last week, I was like, oh, wow, maybe glossa is not the form I remember because it's so long. <laughs> and, and it ended up being a lot longer than I thought, but that's okay. It's a good exercise to write something longer. And really, I mean, I don't know. I mean, 40 lines isn't that bad, I guess. I, I used to write poems that long. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, so I ended up telling the whole, I told it, I used it as a narrative, but I think it, you know, it's got too much language in it, so it needs to get paired way back. But and in any case, here's what I did. I took um, a, a poem that Emily Dickinson wrote about a shipwreck and, and, you know, I think like 40 people died in the wreck and only a few survived. And, and this was the final stanza of her poem. Then a silence suffuses the story and a softness the teller's eye and the children no further question and only the waves reply. So here, here we go into the story. Scheherazade, my Kareem, wove me stories. Oh, just a second. That's the wrong version. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, no. Okay. Okay, my Scheherazade Karim wove me stories in azure tiled coffee shops. There was or there was not, he'd start, and next date unwind an ending, starting anew, and I'd wait again. Then a silence suffuses this story as he vanishes. Student life in his land was no quad fest, pacing secret meetings, chain-smoking crystal cigarettes, hunger strikes, prison. One day he reappeared thinner. And we started to date again and laced into softness, the teller's eye. Wed, flown, we became pretty birds in a prettier cage, our children in new clothes, bouncing through gardens, sun-filled days, luminous dusks. Tell us a story, they'd say. You board a ship, he'd say. What three things do you bring? The tale unfolds until eyes close and the children no further question. Adults now, they've moved on. Some nights he'll still spin stories, new ones alive. Uh, 
filled with wild gods, oysters, golden threads, stars above and below his dearest inner sea as if he'd never left home. In fact, it gets harder to rebegin and to imagine endings. Yet he gives all this to me and I'm ungrateful. Why? Only the waves reply. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah, I love that. Uh, the, the the rareness of the rhyme uh, really hold. I like that's something I love about this form that I didn't realize. Uh, but that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, Laura Berg once again with uh, with Nofridge Glossa. So thanks so much for sharing that, Laura. And uh, next, let's go to um, Nancy Tinnell or Tinnell. Hey. Hi, Nancy. I I'm think I, yeah, I think it's your first time on, right? Uh, well, I watched last week, uh -huh. but I was intrigued by the glossa form, and I had never even heard of it, let alone written <laughs> one, but I decided to experiment. And because of the 10-line uh, length of each stanza, it, it's, it reads like a narrative, mm -hmm. um, which I guess is good. But uh, it's based on four lines from... Um, Gacela or Gacela de la Muerte Oscura by Federico Garcia Lorca. And I learned that the Gacela is Gazal or Gazal, oh, the form mm -hmm. we had just talked about. That's his poem in that form. So I wrote a, a glossa on his Gacela. Ah, oh, interesting. <laughs> the lines from him are, I want to sleep for half a second, a second, a minute, a century but I want everyone to know that I am still alive, that I have a golden stable inside my lips. And here's the glossa. What is done cannot be undone. Seconds become eternity. The end of the conflict lies somewhere this side of infinity. Death gave our poet prophet peace and endless sleep while we are left with chaos and threat. I, Night's Watchman, know that sleep beckons, but it would be dangerous to acquiesce, abandon my post when so much is at stake, to close my eyes on what must be reckoned. I want to sleep for half a second, to receive relief from this evil that robs us of freedom. Oh, how we need to have you with us, to hear your words, your thoughts expressed, if we could see you once again, even briefly cheat death of its victory, we would be encouraged by your strength. Our cause would be upheld, our hope revived. If only we could bring you back to our reality, a second, a minute, a century, we would ask you to give to us, embed within us your wisdom. Allow us to speak with your voice or let me be there and you hear. You could say to them, you thought I was gone, that my message did not survive, that the people would give up without me, that they would fall to the ground in submission, that help for them would never arrive. But I want everyone to know that I am still alive. You could say to us, listen, good people, keep working for your liberation. Use my voice, my poetry, my plays to speak against all injustice. I leave them as my legacy, launch them like an armada of ships, resist the forces that are holding you down. My words will resound like thundering hooves. They will know when their empire is held in your grip. 
that I have a golden stable inside my lips. Oh, that is another excellent use of the form. I, I'm really liking this this glossa. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nancy. Yeah, that was uh, Nancy Tunnell with uh, glossa. And let's go. Uh, let's go next to. Let's go to Katie Dozier next. I know she has a, a shorter. So we went. We've seen the double glossa. Now let's go to the glossette and see what Katie's got for us. Hey, Katie. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and thanks for the beer. You're welcome, <laughs> beer. Um, so, yeah. uh, so you have a glossette, and, and tell us what what that form. I think you made it up, but but you might not be the first. I think you want. partially made it up, actually. <laughs> I think it was you kind of made it up because I was like, I don't think I can write a, a stanza that's ten lines. It's just not my style. And now, of course, I feel like an idiot. We've listened to like twenty awesome glossas now, uh, so I didn't do that. I did a gloss set and I I added additional rhyme to it though, as you'll probably see, because it doesn't uh, float in the background as much as it does when you're dealing with a 10 line stanza, it turns out. So this is after I used a poem uh, that we read on the poetry space, which was Silence by Billy Collins. And I love this poem. I read it a bunch of times, so I figured why not go with this? So this is Sound, a gloss set after Silence by Billy Collins. Okay. The first I ever heard must have been my own cry. Pastel paper slicing at the hospital walls, my pink cheeks ripe with knitted fury. The white, a silence that had piled up all night until the storm of that sterile cloud exploded. Through the squeak of so many doors, I floated. The lightning crack of a book, the footsteps of a mouse, like snow falling in the darkness of the house, turning the pages of Goodnight Moon. The hours I slept alone in the green room, babysat by flowers. My bedfellows were books I piled up, asleep, unheard, the silence before I wrote a word. And then the wake-up cry, a just-lit match, striking sparks on the flint of my first tooth, snatched these flying pages, the crib gone in a new moon, how a room must be plowed, and the poor silence now. Oh, that's great. So. The glossette. And Nate Jacob says, isn't the glossette a kind of candy? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is now. Do you want to market it, Nate Jacobs? There you I will go. Buy trademark. Candy. Yeah, you got to trademark <laughs> that before someone takes it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thanks so much, Katie, for uh, for sharing that and introducing us to a new version of a new form. And also, uh, we should mention that Katie is the co-host of the Poetry Space with me over on Twitter on Thursdays. I'll be flying uh, back to California but uh, Katie's going to be doing an open line. So if anybody doesn't get enough of their open line fix right now, uh, find Katie's uh, Twitter for uh, the Poetry Space open line. You can just search for the Poetry Space anywhere, too. That's Thursday at 3 p.m. Your gloss at both your candy and your poems. That's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, thanks, Katie. All right. uh, appreciate it. An excellent poem. Thanks very much. Yep. Take care. <laughs> Bye. That was Katie Dozier with uh, Sound. And uh, let's go next to, uh, let's go to Deb Tenenbaum. Hello. <laughs> hey, Deb, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm really feeling quite humbled by all of these I know, you know, books. me too. I mean, I, mine was an abject <laughs> failure. I got halfway through it and then just like, it was like crashing into a wall. But everybody else made it through with beautiful poems. So I guess that's the, a lesson in, in life and humility <laughs> for me. <laughs> Well, what happened to me, I guess, is I, as usual, I didn't pay full attention. So um, my stanzas have eight lines, not 10. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't do a rhyme scheme. But 
I'll, I'll, I'll throw it at you anyway. Yeah, well, it um, sounds good. And, you know, as long as a poem comes out, I should always say, and I, I think I do, but as long as a poem comes out of it, I don't care if we follow the prompt or not. And so I'm glad right. we got one. Okay. And um, I watched uh, this most recent critique of the week and, this, and then this, this weekend. And I, so I'm also um, doing mine off a poem called Silence, but it's by Kate Dunbar, who had um, uh, uh, submitted her poem for Critique of the Week, and it sort of stayed in my head. So um, I was inspired by that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, let's hear it. And I I like the way um, Katie highlighted the lines. I have mine at the end. And should I read them first, though, the... That was yeah, why don't you read the quote so we know. Yeah, that'd be good. Okay. <clears throat> All right. This is from Silence by Kate Dunbar. When we daydream, we draw on the chemicals that are released when we sleep. More seconds, mere seconds can feel as if days have passed, as bodies become disengaged and disoriented. It is a rare condition, at most an inconvenience, but some have a twist within that allows deeds to be done leaving no knowledge of the event in the memory of the day walker, I may be one. Mm -hmm. And so those who swallow stones, sometime during childhood, they fall asleep, lose interest in waking to a social fabric that doesn't fit. It sags at the waist, constricts at the knees, nothing worth keeping. So they daydream drawing on chemicals released while they sleep. Time stutters, adult-imposed routines that drag, spliced with fast-forward sprints that leave the day walkers out of step. They trip, sprawl flat on the asphalt, skin their chins. Seconds can feel as if days have passed, as bodies become disengaged and disoriented. They take cover inside the folds of fields, fade into faint facsimiles. Imagine a clock whose sweeping hands gradually deface. It is rare, but some have a funny twist within that allows delicate deeds to be done, leaving no track in the memories of the daywalkers. They hold slow to life, swallow stones, grow old without traction, erase careless lines, sow ease within silence. Do they hurry towards death? or yearn to return to a time before birth, to be undone, to rewind themselves into ghosts. It's eerie to speak of them, I may be one. Yeah, beautiful poem, Deb. That's really wonderful. That was uh, To Those Who Swallow Stones, a great a great title, too. Thanks for sharing that. Um, thank you. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Great <laughs> poem. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know what, what we're referring to, that is the Critique of the Week, which I guess if you're watching this, but maybe you're new to the Rattlecast, we do a critique every... Uh, every uh friday at 4 p.m eastern and so if you go to rattle.com slash critique you can find the submission window to submit your poems up for critique if you'd like to have that done um, and last week we did a, a two by kate dunbar and one was silence which had just so many great lines it's an interesting uh, mind for poetry there by kate um and and pull some lines from that poem so thanks for uh pulling us back to that deb and uh let's go next to um let's go to i want to go to nate jacob there's Nate. Hey, Nate, how you doing? Hey, good evening. I'm always surprised to hear my name. <laughs> well, you're here now. So what do you got for us? Did you do the prompt? 
I, I wrote uh, a glossa. So you know the thing is, I was like, gosh, this is gonna be such a frustrating prompt that no one's gonna actually do it, and like everybody's done it. <laughs> so it I was, guess it, it goes to uh, yeah, like like um, uh, like Bruce was talking about, you know, challenge yourself, you know, make it hard. Uh, I guess yeah. maybe that that dictum works. <laughs> it was hard. I I tend to write away from an idea, and writing towards the 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 final line of those four stanzas was a challenge. Yeah, that's a sure. great way to put it. Actually, that that was kind of my difficulty too. Was was trying to get both both to get the syntax around her weird, but then also knowing I had a target like made it. It's a totally different process for writing. Yeah, yeah, it was hard. But I have a uh, well. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's uh, it's based on uh, four lines from uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I did not choose a poem. Uh, I've been reading a lot of Cormac McCarthy since he died. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's from The Road. It's uh, people were always getting ready for tomorrow. I didn't believe in that. Tomorrow wasn't getting ready for them. They didn't even know they were there. And my poem's titled Yesterday, Today, Tomorrow, and Grandpa. The day came and went, and no one even noticed, as though lightless sunrise led directly into sunset, and nobody looked up wondering where Tuesday went. Tuesdays didn't matter to anyone anymore, apparently. It simply had none of the cachet of Wednesday, hump day, with that tummy tip tickling bottoming out, leading us all into the best day of the work week, Thursday, he claimed, when everyone worked harder to get the weekend started ahead of time before the calendar could notice. People were always getting ready for tomorrow. One would think that a personal philosophy shared by a grandfather to his granddaughter over his very best specialty, a a no-no breakfast of waffles and semi-softened vanilla ice cream, topped as well with the syrup of his homeland, would be as sweet as the meal, sappy even. Instead, this four-year-old angel with the blondest halo was darkly warned against every imaginable danger as though simply by warning her, he had saved her. I never scared my kids straight. I didn't believe in that. But for the old man, wrapped tight in fear and mistrust, there was rarely enough of every today for him to adequately concern himself with everything gone mad in the disintegrating light of yesterday. Much less time to stew and to hem and haw over the promise of darkness to come tomorrow. It was as if tomorrow was forever looming above and ahead, an omen in and of itself like some vulture circling the skies, measuring his and our future corpses. Tomorrow wasn't getting ready for them, nor for us. Tomorrow wasn't even aware of him, not at the moment, because tomorrow never looks back, neither to today nor to yesterday, a fact that left the old man more upset, flummoxed and flabbergasted, he would say that there was simply no measurable future in living if the living was to be so fraught with every danger that he could imagine, confirmed by the radio men whose messages were clearest when the skies were darkest. Tomorrow wanted nothing to do with their messaging. My daughter agreed. Tomorrow didn't even know they were there. Oh, great character sketch kind of poem there. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and Grandpa by Nate Jago. Really love that. These are The poems are just coming out outstanding. Thanks for sharing that, Nate. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, and that feels like, you know, it could be the start of a novel or something, or a novel in verse, something too. Very interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that, Nate. Thank you. So Nate Jacob with Yesterday, Today, Tomorrow, and Grandpa. I should say, by the way, uh, for the, those who are new, if you want to, uh, after you read your poem, you can jump back to YouTube 
or Facebook, and then uh, you can see the poem too. It's kind of better watching than Zoom, although Zoom does have a little chat window, which is fun as well. All right, next up, let's go to Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? I am just overwhelmed with like this evening of poetry the interview you know the thing is too i thought um the the open lines poems are just so great i really didn't think people were gonna be writing a lot of glosses and that's why i put ernie in here i thought we'd have a short open lines because there wouldn't be many (laughs) many inspiration from the prompt and instead we have a whole bunch uh they are entrancing and and to follow up the uh you know the interview which i'm gonna that that's an interview i'm gonna go back and and replay there's just so many little points in there that i just want to savor yeah and bruce is a great poet i was really looking forward to this one for a while because i've been a fan of his work for gosh as long as i've been a, a fan of poetry i think well great poet and 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 no accident just really thoughtful about about the about the work i just loved it mm-hmm. um so, so yeah so what do you have for us is it a is it, a it it's i actually i said it was Poets Respond poem. I sent you a revised version uh, in the open lines. Gotcha. So we get a break from the form. And what do you, what's the uh, inspiration for this one? Uh, let's see. You said there were two primary prompts for this week. One was climate change and one was uh, <laughs> cluster bombs. Yep, cluster bombs and climate change. It was like climate, it was the, the uh, choice just, of the two. And we've had a lot yeah. of climate change poems, so I went with a cluster bomb. That was one of the things I was thinking about. But yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a climate change poem. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it is definitely. And, it's hot here. It's hot everywhere. <laughs> That's for yeah. Sure. It's it's a. Um, it was, yeah. Uh, the the uh, the three things. My daughter lives in Vermont. It's a mess where they are. Uh, fl- uh, oh, you didn't read the news? No, I did. Of uh, <laughs> uh, Vermont has had historic floods, uh, prehistoric <laughs> floods. Let's say oh, uh, wow. just mm-hmm. unbelievably destructive. Um, the water in the Florida Keys is over 96 degrees. Wow. And uh, my cousin or my nephew lives in Palm Desert where it's 120 degrees. Yeah, <laughs> so, Although that I can attest is every year. <laughs> Palm right. Desert. I go down there sometimes just to experience the, uh, yeah. the insanity of eventually it, it surviving and existing there. Well, Death Valley had a record. And, and so it's, and of course, you know, there are floods and heat waves all over mm-hmm. the world. These are just the ones that I read about. So here we go. And this is, um, 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 if, if there, uh, it's called, there once was a story other than this with excerpts from the book of dread. And if you'll scroll down to the end, you will see the book of dread is a newly unearthed scriptural codex of the climate crisis. Authorship of this text is currently attributed to the fictitious 17th century ancestor of poet Dick Westheimer. Well, that is a complicated conceit. Very interesting. Dick. <laughs> yes. So, so there, there are. You'll have to like accept that conceit for this poem to maybe work. To if it works. Uh, epigraph is from Carl Sagan. Billions of years from now, our sun will have reduced. Uh, our sun will have reduced Earth to a charred cinder, but the Voyager record will still be largely intact in some other remote region of the Milky Way galaxy, preserved as a murmur of an ancient civilization that once flourished. 
and the people folded their hands in prayer and asked to be given names instead of rain, but all they got was rain. Our daughter calls. Their road has washed out. They're okay, but the neighbor's barn swept away and the sheep are mud-hooved and hungry. The people cowered in fear as the heat lay upon them like a funeral shroud, and they prayed for rain instead of names. Out in California, my nephew's power is down, and it's going to be 120 tomorrow. He loves his house and his little town, but his partner is dying in the heat, and he's got uh, to go. He has nowhere to go. The windless seas began to roil like a cauldron under a sheared spell, and the people cried out in despair. Down in the Keys, my sister says the water's too hot to swim in. They just rebuilt from the storm. Now she's wondering why. After seven years of plenty, the gods sent omens, boiling seas, great floods, a vision of hell, creatures of earth and sky coming undone. The people ripped at their raiments, but paid no heed. Here, a squirrel lays prostrate on the blacktop, limbs splayed. Quiet as a stalking cat, he peers into the vine-tied thicket. Nearby, a robin has pressed its breast against the same pavement, stares into the same green tangle. And one man was righteous, blameless in his age. The god bade him to save his people from their wickedness. We're each on different carved dark, cave dark decks of Noah's Ark, smudged and squalling with creatures of our own kind. Noah at the helm knows there's no place to moor. There never has been. The dove has flown and not returned. The raven speaks to the old man in riddles. Noah cocks his head and nods, reaches his knurled hands to the sky and tumbles from the gunnels into the ceaseless waters. The rest of us, oblivious in the hold of the drifting ship, at last recall our names. And the god, despaired, said to the people, save the smallest part of you, give it to a child, so that she may remember what once was good. Our names are revealed to us as hope in the old stories we tell again and again until they are etched into us like grooves on Voyager's golden record. The survivors will hold these tales as the ark holds us to tell their children's children so they may know there once was a story other than the fall. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, as someone said in the comments, that was an epic poem, Dick. Uh, there once was a story other than this, with excerpts from the Book of Dread. And I think I remember that uh, submission. I think you didn't have, you didn't have the uh, Book of the Dread as a part of there, did you? I had the book of dread. It was a different title, the yeah. book, book of something else. Mm -hmm. But I was out on a run today, and I thought I'm going to have this character write a whole book of the book of dread. Well, that's, so that's very interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. The uh, the debut of the book of dread. <laughs> very yes. interesting, Dick. Thanks, Tim. Yep. Take care. Bye. So Dick Westheimer once again. Let's go to Alan Harvey next. Hey. Hi, Tim. Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing great, um, though my response is for last week's prompt, oh, the multimedia. Right. The multimedia poem. Okay, so 
Um, though I hope I, it's not too tricky for you to show. Um, let's this... see, where did you, did you send it here? Let's see. Let me pull it up. Uh, I don't see it on the email. Did you send it? I, yeah. I went through submissions on the website. Oh, it's on, so okay. Well, okay. that's a different place, but that's okay. So you sent it, um, uh, well, I'll just type in. Let me see. We, we'll find it. So, so explain what you did, and I'll try to find it as you go. Well, actually, you're the inspiration for what I did. Interesting. Um, okay. I remember you saying when you get high bun submissions, mm -hmm. you go straight to the haiku first and decide if it's worth reading the rest of it. So um, I've created an artist book. Mm -hmm. It's currently on exhibit at the University of Puget Sound. Oh, wow. Um, and the text is on the pages, but the haiku is actually hanging from like a mobile. In the <laughs> oh, wow, this is amazing. Page. Oh, my gosh. I'll put it on screen. And again, if you're just watching, if you're on the Zoom, you should go over to, the, <laughs> you should go over to YouTube so you can see what we're actually looking at. But this is, uh, this is it. This is the book, uh, A Nocturnal Journey, Hyben and Linked Haiku by Alan Harvey. And then we see the book here. Uh, with on a little like a mobile popping out like it's like a pop-up book <laughs> that's amazing that you managed to do that um is the haiku popping out of the text that's really neat alan so um i hope you're able to display just by scrolling down but yeah i definitely can so why don't you go ahead and uh start reading them and i'll or okay. whatever you'd like to read and i'll share nocturnal journey there's an ancient wisdom we learn from the darkness of the night Creation was born out of darkness. The darkness we fear is just part of our creator's handiwork. No longer alone, blue moon. There is safety in the privacy of the night. We can drop pretense and presumption. It's a gestational period. The beginning of life represents safety in its watery environment. Full moon. Tightrope walking between pole and pine. Hmm. Darkness is a time of, time of regeneration and reflection. We turn our minds over to the subconscious. Light pollution washes out the night sky. We are cut off from the marvels of the night. Pine tree is lifting its candles. Crickets in the night, in the dark. Heading to college as a young man and crossing Montana in the depths of night, I stopped at a rest area in the middle of nowhere. It took a minute to reach the restrooms for my eyes to adjust to the darkness. Glancing upwards, the spectacle of the heavens above made me gasp. Dark eyes, even in full moonshine, captured in the shadows. The Milky Way was spread out across the sky, and there were more stars than my imagination could reckon. The nighttime sky was painted with a cosmic paintbrush. Moonshadow of mine permitted to cross the raked gravel. There's a complexity at work here that goes beyond human ingenuity. What guiding hand developed complex proteins with different sequences to do different jobs in biological systems? Gravel pathway leading to the thin place, no longer 
Oh, wow. That was really cool, uh, Alan. And so, so say it again, where this is on display, where you can find this uh, book. I assume it's one of a kind. Yes. Um, it, our, uh, our group is putting on exhibit at the University of Puget Sound in, in Tacoma, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in the library right now. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, very cool. Uh, thanks so much for and, sharing that. And it's, uh, well, it's neat to know I inspired something that neat. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Yeah, so that was uh, Alan Harvey with this uh, this mixed media um, book of Hyben uh, Nocturnal Journey. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Alan. Let's uh, go next to well, let's go to Audrey Friedman. Hello, everybody. Hey, Audrey. And we are at the time we usually end the show, but we'll just keep going and make sure we get everyone on the Zoom. This is the first time we've made it to to two and a half hours. And still have Zoomers, but we we want to keep it going. So so, how are you doing tonight, Audrey? I'm I'm wonderful. Um, so yes, I took the challenge. Um, I took some text from Rick Jackson, um, who I adore. Um, had the privilege of studying with him for a short time at Vermont College. Um, I did cheat a little bit. Mm-hmm. I did rhyme. And I altered some of the, his, some of his line breaks mm-hmm. to better flow with mine. Sounds good. A loose glossa. That's it. <laughs> A cheater. <laughs> I just call After, it loose. Okay. After such rain, the sunflowers stand like mops. There were warnings, of course. A spinning weather vane, knuckled clouds that flanked the harbor, the whole sky swaying like a coat on a nail. Richard Jackson. Cumulonimbus, heavy, pregnant. Its water breaks and comes in menacing floods. Limbs crack, assaulted by gusts and lightning forks. After such rain, the sunflowers stand like mops, considering their pithy stems still are intact and rooted. Any of us can snap, find our heads pillowed by soft mud. Nothing of the limp aftermath truly surprises us. There were warnings, of course, a spinning weather vane splintered ghost boats, scarred pearls that mark the horizon line. The sunflower is not the only victim. We ought to have listened to the black and menace, to knuckled clouds that flanked the harbor. How does one anchor himself, brace his brittle back, shield himself from the vortex inside his own home where he fears breaking like the sunflower the whole sky swaying like a coat on a nail oh that is really wonderful uh, that uh gloss after the richard jackson poem thanks so much for sharing that i mean really the glosses are just great tonight fabulous night yeah for the challenges <laughs> Yeah, they they definitely are, but people rise up to it. Uh, let's go next to uh, Emily D. Ferrari. Hey, Emily, are you there? Oh, we gotta unmute you. Oh, she can't unmute right now. Let's go instead to Stephen Horrell, and then we'll we'll go back to Emily in a second. 
<laughs> hey, Stephen, how you doing? Hi there. This has been an amazing evening. Like you nailed me on everything between Vietnam and I was raised out just in, in Philadelphia. We used to go to the Jersey Shore. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. It's, pretty, it's weird how the world and, works out. This was your episode. And, Thanks and for inspiring this, it. <laughs> this poem I'm going to read tonight, uh, I haven't been able to read it in public, so I'm probably going to have to think of doing laundry before <laughs> I get before I get done it. Interesting. Anyway, okay. okay. It's called uh, No One Can See You. The moon ghosts its way through the afternoon. The air folds and drops its secrets, a swirl of invisible skirts. Once there was a boy throwing baseballs, the strike zone clearly marked. Is it always so? You are in the hospital again and no one can see you. Apparently we can reach the other side, as they call it, without going anywhere. I am contemplating asparagus, gone wild at the river's mouth. You are walking through the marsh grass, breaking off young spears. We are both laughing. And I am back in the field again, weeding the rows of tomatoes always longer than I think. You came back from the kayak trip where your gloves stopped, your wrists were sunburnt. Wrists so red like you'd been scalded, still tasting of salt. When you get there, Will we be on the same side? Will we recognize each other? Will the darkness be eternal just for us? The ringing in my ears at night, a dog barks. The magic of fireflies, bats are jagged pieces of cloth. The ringing is all about possibility. I thought we would grow old together. We already have, you said. You are in the hospital again, and no one can see you. Our daughters think I should see a therapist. In the warm fur of dreams, shadows drop at my feet. Your absence, the thread so fine, the needle so deep. Oh, that's a beautiful. I love that ending, and I love uh, I love that drops its secrets, a swirl of invisible skirts, and then the baseball reference, too. Uh, great poem, Steve. I, I, well, I, really like I thought you'd like the baseball <laughs> I always do. Reference. I always like a baseball reference. I cannot, I cannot lie. <laughs> Thanks okay. for sharing that. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to mention that has been, I meant to mention this earlier, that's been accepted by Hanging Loose. Oh, excellent. I love Hanging Loose. One of the yeah. older uh, magazines out there. So yeah, it congratulations. is. Congratulations. Yeah. 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 Yeah, very cool. I Thanks was also... I was also in Hanging Loose 12 in 1970. Oh, wow. That's, that's and then really I probably, cool. I haven't written for, I mean, mm -hmm. for decades. Yeah. Uh, I've written, but haven't sent them anywhere. Yeah, I got you. Well, anyway, thanks so much for sharing that one. Great Steve. evening. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, take care. That was Steve Horro once again with uh, No One Can See You. And uh, next, let's go to, uh, we have a couple people left. Let's go to uh, Emily D. Ferrari again. Let's see if we can unmute. I think we, she did, just as we were saying, <laughs> to move on. Hey, Emily, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, and glad I've heard that you're good, too, because I know you've been asked already. <laughs> yeah. so, um, uh, so what have you got for us? So I have a pseudoglossa. Mm -hmm. ah, I didn't pseudoglossa. realize it was supposed to have rhyme. I didn't realize it was supposed to have meter. So it doesn't have that. And it's five lines instead of 10, because I knew there were going to be uh, a lot of long poems. Tonight, so I made my <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Thank you. So <laughs> okay. this is my Titanic. Interesting. And from uh, the, the new Ruta. 
Yeah. So the lines, um, it's from Dead Gallop by Pablo Neruda, and the lines are, like ashes, the seas peopling themselves in the submerged slowness, in the shapelessness, or as one hears from the crest of the roads, the crossed bells crossing. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I will tell you this, your boat will not be remembered. Boats carrying crystal and soft velvet like jewels in a heavy sky are remembered. But boats that carry plastic water bottles and blue tarps are as forgettable as your begging tongues. Like ashes, the sea peopling themselves, the waves royal and rise and crash one into the other, none of these things will be remembered. They will ebb into hidden ports, become stagnant, carry wet rind beaten from fragile paper, and floating downward, tangled alphabets will sink in the submerged slowness, in the shapelessness of our consciousness, addicted as we are to the fineness of the china, the smooth, cold feel of heavy silver in our mouths, the painful loveliness of violins that are compelled to be played as lifeboats leave with empty seats, or as one hears from the crest of the roads, roads with no tire tread, no boot marks, roads calling us, look here, look here, we see beyond the major chords, pick up your tempo, clang, call back the lifeboats, clang, grasp the rope, clang, pull them in, fill every seat, and more, do not ignore the clang of the crossed bells crossing. Oh, that's beautiful. Great, uh, great glossa of the, uh, the Neruda pulling beauty out of beauty there. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks. Yeah. I was that was Emily D. Ferrari with a, a wonderful close of my Titanic. And that's going to wrap up the open lines, I believe. Let me do one more check. Yeah. Okay, so we're good now. And uh, as I was saying, that was like a perfect transition, like a plant in the audience, but um, but not. It was just a random poem that came up. But I have actually, weirdly, this is a weird, a bad week for it, but I had two Saiku, and I wasn't sure which one to do. And since we're staying late anyway... Um, maybe you can pick which one you like better. But the first one that seems to be prompted by Mark is based on this article right here. This is, uh, I'll try to try to get on the screen for everybody watching still. Um, this is, okay, so air pollution particles may be a cause of dramatic drop in global insect numbers. And so like, uh, like Mark Freiberg was talking about just a little bit, insects seem to be disappearing, um, and uh, I'm not sure about the, the validity of, of measurements of that, if we can, how we can quantify that. But just anecdotally, it does seem like you drive across the, the highways of the world, and, or at least North America, and your cars used to be covered in bugs, and now they're not. And that creeps me out and <laughs> bothers me more than really any other environmental thing. The idea that you know, that's the, the bottom of the food chain that everybody feeds on. So the birds that fall off that, and then all the animals eat the birds, and just and the pollination and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, uh, what these researchers did at the uh, University of Melbourne was they took some flies and they exposed them to um, um, particulate pollution, uh, particulate matter in the air, and then they they checked their mating and how well they mated. And they had to sort of go through a little maze to find their mate or find food. 
um, or actually find pheromones from their mate or find food. And uh, the ones that were exposed to the pollution for like 10 minutes, it wasn't even long, um, couldn't find their mate. It was 50-50, whether they got to the end of the maze or not in the right way. The ones that were the control group found their mate like every time so they could smell with their little feelers. So it turns out that the air pollution might be the drop in insect numbers. They can't find each other if their antenna are coked with pollution. And so here's my little psyche based on that. Uh, right here. Two antenna cloaked in smog failed marriage. Two antenna cloaked in smog failed marriage. That is our one psyche. Then I have a second a second one. And so you can tell me which one you like better if you're still watching the show. The other one, because I was kind of debating between which one, and then both haiku popped in my head, and I thought, well, why not? The other one is right here. Um, similar, you know, environmental news. Um, here we go. This is out of MIT. Study, the ocean's color is changing as a consequence of climate change. The color changes reflect significant shifts in essential marine ecosystems. And basically, they can look at the oceans. You can't see the difference with the naked eye. But if you measure different wavelengths of light by satellite, you can see that the oceans are actually changing, becoming less blue um, as uh, there's a sh some kind of shift in the plankton, which you can measure and quantify that, even though you can't really see it with the naked eye. But the oceans are becoming less blue, it turns out. And uh, because it's happening so fast, it really can't be anything but the increasing temperature. Uh, and so there is another climate change story for you right there. And the psyche that that inspired is this one. See if you like this one better. Ocean blue, a little deeper after you. Ocean blue, a little deeper after you. That is your second Saiku, everything rhymes, so that's just the way we're going today. But I hope you enjoyed those. I uh, hope you enjoyed this show. Now, uh, we're going to go to uh, next week's prompt uh, really quickly. And we talked about prose poems, um, you know, with uh, Bruce Weigel, what seems like a while ago now. Uh, his newest book, um, um, I'm drawing a blank on the title, The Alms After the Alms. Let me see. What is it called? It is called um, Among Alms. That's the word. Among Alms among elms and ambush his newest book is a book of prose poems and so we thought we'd do a prose poem ourselves and so the prompt for next week is this write a parablistic prose poem include at least one animal so write a poem a prose poem that is a parable of some kind and include one animal that is your prompt for next week and next week's guest on the rattlecast is going to be da 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 it is going to be Sasha Styles. So uh, you probably know Sasha Styles if you are a subscriber to Rattle. Sasha was interviewed in the summer tribute to NFT poets issue. Sasha is uh, just one of the preeminent uh, NFT poets. She's got, got fascinating things to say about AI and poetry. Her book, Technology, uses an AI that was trained after her own writing and her own notes to create sort of an alter ego that she goes back and forth with in these poems. She's also written poems using um, a different AI um, Really fascinating stuff. Her book is sort of like a textbook on what's going on for NFTs, so that's why we interviewed her. We're going to have her on as a poet guest, sharing a lot of poems. Rattlecast number 203, the regular time with your prose poem parables. And that's me next week. Rattlecast number 203, Monday, July 24th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.